0: Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. Hi, everyone! Today I'll talk about one of my favorite fairy tales, The Black Bull of Norway. I'll give a brief background on the tale itself and read aloud my version of it. Then I'll discuss how a Christian artist could retell this fairy tale in the light of Scripture or by using the Bible as a standard for truth and beauty. The Black Bull of Norway is a Scottish fairy tale collected by Andrew Lang in the Blue Fairy Book in 1889, and curiously enough, Joseph Jacob's More English Fairy Tales in 1894, which I have to say, Joseph Jacobs, this is this is not an English tale, this is definitely Scottish. I most recently encountered it in Nora and William Montgomery's book, The Folk Tales of Scotland, published in 1956. I picked up a copy at Topping's bookstore in St. Andrews in Scotland, partly because it had a, a gorgeous blue cover. It's also beautifully written. The Black Bull of Norway is an animal bridegroom story, that's the folklore category i'm realizing as i go on in this project i have a real fondness for those i'm not sure why so here i'll read aloud the tale itself this is my rearticulation, not so much a retelling i read a bunch of versions and then i wrote my own trying to avoid copyright issues i rely most heavily on andrew lang's version so credit to him but his work is also in the public domain so i think i'm good here it is the black bull of norway <music> Once upon a time, there was a mother who lived with her three daughters. Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop, for I'm off to seek my fortune, said the oldest daughter. Soon after, a coach and six came up the road to their door, and she got in to go off and marry a prince. Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a collop, for I'm off to seek my fortune, said the next oldest daughter. Soon after, a coach and four came up the road to their door, and she got in to go off and marry a duke. "'Mother, bake me a bannock and roast me a cullet, for I'm off to seek my fortune,' said the youngest daughter. Soon after, a great black bull came over the hill and along the road to their door. "'It is the black bull of Norway,' the spaywife next door told the youngest daughter. "'You must go with him, for he is to be your husband.' The youngest girl trembled and shook, but what could she do? She climbed up on the black bull's back, and they set off towards the mountains." The girl was aghast with fear but the bull spoke kindly to her. When she grew hungry he told her, reach into my left ear and eat what you find there. She reached into his ear and found a loaf of bread. When she grew thirsty he told her, reach into my right ear and drink what you find there. She reached into his ear and found a full wineskin. They came to a splendid castle. My youngest brother lives here, said the bull. They spent the night there. In the morning, the girl was called into a fine parlor and given an apple. «Use this only when you are in the gravest danger a mortal can face», they said. They came to a second splendid castle. «My middle brother lives here», said the Bull. They spent the night there. In the morning, the girl was called into a fine parlor and given a pear. «Use this only when you are in the gravest danger a mortal can face», they said. They came to a third splendid castle. «My oldest brother lives here», said the Bull. They spent the night there. In the morning, the girl was called into a fine parlor and given a plum. Use this only when you are in the gravest danger a mortal can face, they said. The girl and the bull set off again and came to a meadow. Wait here and sit on this rock, said the bull. I'm off to fight the evil one. If all around you turns red, mourn, for he has defeated me. If all around you turns blue, rejoice, for I have defeated him. But do not move hand or foot, and sit still as stone, or I will not be able to find you again." The girl sat still as the battle raged in the next valley. After a long time, the world and trees and sky around her turned blue. Distracted with joy was she, so much so that she crossed one foot over another. So it was that the bull returned but could not find her, though he searched for a long time. The girl wandered, lonely and desolate, seeking her bull. She came to a glass hill she could not climb, though she tried many times. At the foot of the hill, she found a blacksmith. I will give you iron shoes to climb the hill, he said, if you serve me for seven years. She served for seven years, then put on the iron shoes and climbed the hill. Afterwards, the wandering girl came upon a house where an old woman and the old woman's daughter lived. She learned that the prince of that kingdom had recently returned after many years He had been transformed into a black bull by an evil spell. He was searching for his true bride, who would prove herself by washing his blood-stained shirt clean. The old woman's daughter was granted permission to try to wash the shirt. "'Let me try to wash it,' said the wandering girl, our main character. She scrubbed the shirt until it was clean. Delighted, the old woman's daughter claimed the deed for herself. She brought the clean shirt to the prince so that she would be his bride. Wedding preparations began. In distress, the wandering girl remembered the gifts she'd been given. She produced the apple and broke it open, finding the finest jewelry in all the world inside. She brought it to the daughter of the old woman who owned the house. "'I will give this to you,' she said, "'if you let me spend the night in the room of your husband-to-be.'" The old woman's daughter agreed, but gave the prince a sleeping draft that night so that he would wake to nothing. The wandering girl wept over the prince, who she knew was her black bull, returned a proper human form from the spell. He would not wake. She sang, Seven years I sought for you, the glass hill I climbed for you, the stained shirt I washed for you, will you not waken to me? But she had to leave him in the morning. The next day, the wandering girl broke open the pear and find jewelry inside twice as fine as the jewelry from the apple. She made the same bargain as before but the old woman's daughter gave her husband-to-be the same sleeping draught so that he did not wake, though she sang over him again. The next day the prince's servant asked him, what was the crying I heard coming from your room last night? The prince could not remember and grew suspicious. That day the wandering girl broke open the plum, found jewelry inside that was finer still, and made the same bargain as before. However, this time the prince was wary of the drink his bride-to-be prepared. He asked her to go and fetch some honey for it, and while she was gone, he emptied it out the window. So it was that night, the wandering girl pleaded with the prince to wake, and he did. At last, my true bride, he said when he saw her. The old woman and her scheming daughter were sentenced to death. The true bride and her prince were married the following day, with great ceremony, and lived in his kingdom happily ever after. I tried to address all or most of the images in this tale when I was preparing this episode. I had a list of about eight, and I had to keep cutting them down because they're too many uh, and they're all so good. So maybe I'll return to this fairy tale later to talk more about it. But for now, I'll stick to four images. The Call, The Animal Bridegroom or The Black Bull, The Wandering in the Wilderness, and The Glass Hill. As I'm talking about this and how you could approach retelling, I'm going to talk as if you're doing a straight retelling, like a fairly simple. It starts when the fairy tale starts, it ends when the fairy tale ends, and the heroine is the wandering girl. She's the main character, focus on her, and everything pretty much happens as the tale goes. Retellings can mess with time and perspective, point of view, characters, etc., but I'm just going to speak as if you're doing a kind of a, a more standard retelling just to make things simpler for myself. So first image, the call. Here I'm talking about the beginning of the story. The two sisters go off to marry a prince and a duke, and the third daughter is obviously expecting something similar. If all had gone according to what seems to be her plan, a coach and two would have shown up with some lower rank than a duke as her husband. But instead, she's suddenly and abruptly called to have to go marry a great black bull. In other words, she's called suddenly by a fate she did not expect, which is an excellent way to begin a plot. In scripture, we witness the callings or the commissions of patriarchs, judges, kings, prophets, apostles, and disciples. God or a representative of God comes with a command and their response to that command reveals their character. For example, Abram and Hosea respond with instant obedience, which is the right thing to do, Genesis 12, 1-4, God commands Abraham to go, and he goes. No argument. Hosea 1, 2 through 2-3, the Lord commands Hosea to go take a wife of whoredom, and he obeys immediately. He goes and takes a wife of whoredom. No argument. And this is good. It reveals a character of faith, which is the most important thing. Faith is counted as righteousness, humility, and willingness. There are other callings which are not the same, um, are not... The instant obedience but i find these stories sweeter and more revealing of the good character of god um, because they're more hesitant so moses in exodus 3 gideon in judges 6 jeremiah and jeremiah 1 they are all curious they're questioning they're often afraid and they need reassurance but they're still willing it's not they they're not saying no and god reveals his tenderness and patience to them as he responds to their questions. But he's still firm. Oh, you, you will do what I am telling you to do. Jonah, in Jonah 1, responds with outright rebellion. God tells him to go to Nineveh, and he runs off in the opposite direction. But through the intervention of the storm and the, the great fish, he ends up having to do uh, what he's called to do anyway. It's just a lot more painful. Mary, the mother of the Lord Jesus, in Luke 2, responds with this beautiful wonder and reverence a chapter or so later, her Magnificat is one of the most beautiful passages of worship in scripture, which is saying a lot. And there are others as well. Those are just a few examples. This call is a great way to begin characterization. It's, it's pretty much handed to you on a silver platter. How does your character receive the call? Are they an Abram and a, or a Hosea who instantly obey without question? Are they a Moses, Gideon, or Jeremiah who are open but afraid and need reassurance? Are they a Jonah, who refuses and runs in the opposite direction, but ends up going anyway? Are they a Mary, who responds with wonder? This response can be the first picture you give readers of your character. Is she bold or shy? Is she book smart or street smart? Is she creative or analytical? Is she gentle? Is she fierce? How does she respond? And that will be the initial starting point for who she is for the reader. second image the animal bridegroom or in other words the black bull of the title to be clear this animal bridegroom story pattern i believe is it's symbolic and it's appropriate there's no marriage ceremony and no real marriage until the bull is turned back into a man the fact that he starts off as a black bull is the beginning problem that needs to be solved so we'll talk about this in two parts the color black and the image of a bull when I first began to think about this tale, I associated the color black in my mind with the scriptural passages about light and darkness, which are literally all over scripture, Old and New Testament. In 1 John one fifteen 15b, John is writing to the Gentiles and he tells them, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Isaiah and John the Gospel and many, many other passages talk about this. God is light, the image of Goodness and redemption and power and clarity and illumination. Well, darkness stands for evil, sin, suffering, and death. God defeats death. He defeats suffering. He defeats sin. However, light and dark are metaphors. They can carry different meanings in different contexts. And when you're reading the meaning, you need to understand whether you're talking about physical darkness in a narrative or spiritual darkness in a narrative or poetic passage. God can use darkness too. In Psalm eighteen eleven, the speaker describes God coming to rescue him. Quote He made darkness as covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds dark with water. So there darkness has a little bit more of the dreadful and awesome and glorious power of God, which is scary, but in this Psalm he's he's the rescuer coming. He uses darkness when he sees fit. It's it's one of the things he can use in his power and his sovereignty. In many narratives of Scripture, God comes to people in physical darkness; they they can't see him. In Exodus thirty three twenty, God is speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses asked to see God's glory. God has this passage which is so beautiful and so profound. I I didn't want to spoil it by trying to get into all of it but anyway i, I would just go and read it but he ends at his response to moses by saying you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live so god puts moses in a cleft of the rock covers moses with his hand and then passes by so moses can only see his back in genesis 32 jacob wrestles with god at night in the darkness In 1 Samuel 3, God speaks to the boy Samuel at night in the temple. All of these images of the Lord God coming to people in the darkness. So while darkness does stand for sin and gloom and despair, at the same time, physical, literal darkness comes as a time when God approaches human beings and initiates a relationship. He comes as the stranger in the night who's actually a friend, a figure of terror who's also king and redeemer an unexpected and unlooked-for protector who is scary, all-powerful, and beyond our comprehension, and also kind and gentle. All these paradoxes, terrifying and yet comforting, too. I found an echo of this idea in the character of Strider in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings, someone who seems like an enemy at first, but is actually the best friend and deliverer. So this is one way you could take the color black in this story often you'll think oh color black evil in not just fairy tales but all of literature but think of it instead in this case as a mask for an unexpected ally a stranger who astonishes your character and hopefully your audience with goodness secondly the image of a bull a bull is a creature of power and danger everyone will run from a charging bull But in scripture, it's also a symbol of sacrifice. The bull is one of three options for burnt offerings given in the biblical book of Leviticus. As William MacDonald says in the Believer's Bible Commentary, depending on what you could afford, you could sacrifice as a burnt offering, a bull, a sheep or goat, and turtle doves or young pigeons. Because these sacrifices prefigure the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, each one can work as a Christ figure bull sheep or goat turtle dove or young pigeon mcdonald quotes peter pell on the significance of each offering in relationship to christ quote the bull speaks of our lord as a patient unwearied laborer always doing the father's will and a life of perfect sacrifice and a death of perfect sacrifice End quote in this tale the bull acts as a christ figure and that he's the bridegroom christ is the bridegroom of the church And he defeats what i called the evil one in my version other versions call this enemy the old one or some actually say the devil like christ the bull protects and provides for the heroine he gives her food and drink and hospitality and he develops a relationship with her on their journey by the time they get to the valley she's willing to wait when he asks her to and they both seek each other for seven years portray this relationship well and you have the archetype for a kind of romance that imitates the great romance of Christ and the church, which is the best romance of all. As I was reflecting on this tale and this romance, this idea of the black bull as an unexpected friend and ally who is scary at first, but actually turns out to be kind and wonderful, I thought of something important, a kind of warning. You want this to be beautiful. You don't want it to be creepy. That led me down an interesting train of thought. Uh, What makes something creepy? What makes a character creepy? And that's how can you avoid doing that in your story? As far as I can make out, a creepy story or a creepy character, I should say, would involve a person who is demanding, who is intrusive, aggressive, manipulative, who pushes boundaries, and who asks for more than the other is willing to give. Instead a good romance involves a pursuer who is like Christ, even if they're flawed, yes, all normal characters need flaws, but is ultimately or has the potential to become a giver instead of a taker, someone who restores, protects, heals, doesn't hurt, never violates a person's free will, and is willing to sacrifice for the other. So I guess that's the keynote of the Black Bull image. This needs to be someone who's like Christ, who is (laughs) self-sacrificing. wilderness i'll discuss this more briefly than the others but this is the part of the tale where the girl wanders and then has to work for those iron shoes for seven years i tie this to two episodes in scripture jacob and genesis 29 he serves for seven years to win his bride rachel but he's tricked into marrying her older sister leah instead so he has to serve for seven more years for rachel and he gets her in the end I also thought about Israel's wandering in the wilderness, the punishment that's described in Numbers 14, 20 through 38. They had to wander for 40 years because they did not trust that God would give them victory over the inhabitants of the land. This time of waiting is a time of reckoning. Suffering reveals and refines character. So times of uncertainty, struggling, and emptiness really, really great for not just character and building in the sense of your audience getting to know your character, but your character changing development. And your task as artist is to figure out how to make this formative instead of boring. How is your character becoming more like Christ, stronger, more patient, more loving, more joyful? I believe this is the part of the tale where there's a switch. So the black bull was a Christ figure in coming as the bridegroom and fighting the evil one. But now the girl becomes the Christ figure In pursuing him and then trying to wake him in those night scenes and I think that's okay this is not a straight allegory in these images and metaphors if one character is a Christ figure at one point one is a Christ figure at another point that actually mirrors the Christian life pretty well because we should all be Christ figures we should all be imitating Christ the better you can show your heroine becoming like Christ in this time of suffering in love self-sacrifice, patience, endurance, all the fruit of the spirit, the richer your story can become. Fourth image, the glass hill. I have been thinking about this image for months. I've been trying to analyze it and break it down into interesting literary things that I can say, but it's so strange. It's mesmerizing. It's, it's slippery, sorry. It's, it's hard to define or understand. I didn't do a deep dive on scholarship. Again, I'm approaching this more as an artist than as a researcher, but I did find a useful thought from G.K. Chesterton on glass. So in his chapter, The Ethics of Elfland, which is in his book, Orthodoxy, G.K. Chesterton says, it cannot be a coincidence that glass is so common a substance in folklore. This princess lives in a glass castle, that princess on a glass hill. This one sees all things in a mirror. They may all live in glass houses if they will not throw stones. For this thin glitter of glass everywhere is an expression of the fact that happiness is bright but brittle, like the substance most easily smashed by a housemaid or a cat. And this fairy tale sentiment also sank into me and became my sentiment towards the whole world. I felt and feel that life itself is as bright as the diamond, but as brittle as the window pane. And when the heavens were compared to the terrible crystal, I can remember a shudder. I was afraid that God would drop the cosmos with a crash. End quote. So there you go. J.K. Chesterton associated fairy tale glass with the brightness and brittleness of happiness and of life." I'm going to take one aspect of what he did there. He looked at the physical reality of what glass is, and then he applied that to the spiritual meaning. That's a really interesting way of approaching all fairy tale images. Look at what the thing is itself with the eyes of wonder, and you can get a lot more out of it. So I'm just gonna take a look at glass and hills as they are and not try to make them into symbols right away. Glass is a substance constructed of sand, soda ash, and limestone, and it's cast through fire. If you've ever seen glass blowing, especially in person, it's mythical. It looks amazing, like just liquid fire, and also very dangerous. Glass can change form between a liquid and a solid. It's clear and see-through, or it can be colorful. It invites and mediates light, and it's useful and beautiful. Hills are rounded pieces of earth that stick up. They shape and mold a landscape. They give you a view of everything around. They bring you close to the sky. Everything I just said is physical fact, but now think about the spiritual dimension, a beautiful thing that is cast through fire, which has to do with, with light, or a part of the landscape that brings you closer to the sky, closer to the heavens. There's a lot to work with there. Just looking at glass and hills alone, just just the bare Real physical things. You don't need to work hard to make these magical. They're magical already. They're they're marvels. I took glass and hills and I examined them in the light of Scripture and I got very much more than I bargained for. I did a quick word search of glass. Not much mention in Scripture. I think there are about five instances, but two of the last ones really caught my attention. These are from Revelation 4 and Revelation 15, so I'm gonna read both passages. Revelation four, five through six, quote, "'From the throne came flashes of lightning "'and rumblings and peals of thunder. "'And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, "'which are the seven spirits of God. "'And before the throne there was, as it were, "'a sea of glass like crystal.'" So then it describes the four living creatures. I'll skip down to verse eight. "'And the four living creatures, "'each of them with six wings, "'are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never ceased to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Skipping some chapters down to Revelation 15, two through 4 And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. There's a mystery and power here, which I'm afraid to touch. I'm afraid to come to it as, a, as an analyst, as a scholar, as a researcher. I'm afraid to dishonor it with my touch, with my attempt to understand. But I can marvel at it. In chapter 4, we have a sea of glass-like crystal. And in chapter 15, a sea of glass mingled with fire around the throne of a mighty God who is holy, holy, holy. The song of praise in both passages glorifies his holiness as well as his power and goodness how on earth can i break that down in analysis how can i even come close to it i thought of that question how can i even come close and realized anew tasted again the beauty of the answer to that question which is the gospel yes we can come close to this by the blood of jesus christ this is the greatest mystery and the greatest revelation that we are called to come. As awesome and terrifying as the scene is, as holy as the Lord is so far beyond us, he is calling us to come to him and to become holy like him so we can dwell with him. Hills in scripture was no less awe-inspiring. Hills and mountains are often, though not always, places in which people draw near to God. For example, Moses on Mount Sinai in Exodus 24 through 25, Elijah on Mount Horeb in 1 Kings 19 or the Lord Jesus with Peter, James, and John in Mark 9 at the night of his transfiguration. I looked at Psalm 15, the holy hill of the Lord. Quote, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. And the rest of the Psalm goes on to describe this person who can dwell on the holy hill of the Lord. In scripture, glass and hills or mountains are closely connected with the holiness of God. But at the same time, I was, I was shocked to find that in both passages, that holiness and that, that transcendence of God is right next to God's invitation for us to come to him, to dwell with him. So this is a transcendent and untouchable mystery, and at the same time, an invitation to come. This is something celestial and unattainable, but also welcoming. So, as a Christian artist who may be approaching a retelling of the Black Bull of Norway, what do you do with the Glass Hill? I'm not exactly sure what to tell you because I am, I am startled and in, in awe of it myself, but I'll say one thing. Uh, don't break it. Don't break the mystery by oversimplifying it or solving it, even if you have an origin story and a background for it you could definitely do that in a retelling even if there's something like the, the same evil wizard who enchanted the black bull is the same one who made the glass hill if you're making that kind of connection whatever you do, don't spoil the mystery I remember some reading something about J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings that he said in one of his letters he said, part of the attraction of the L.R. which I think he abbreviated Lord of the Rings I think, is due to the glimpses of a large history in the background, an attraction like that of viewing far off an unvisited island or seeing the towers of a distant city gleaming in a sunlit mist. To go there is to destroy the magic unless new unattainable vistas are again revealed. Quote. I love that. So this idea that if you point at things in your narrative and you don't fully explain them, you're creating a world of wonder for your readers to, to dwell on and gaze at and enjoy. Sometimes, I think, you can come across a symbol or a beautiful image like the glass hill, even in your own writing and your own artwork, and you can just enjoy it. You don't have to know everything about it either. This is a great way of avoiding being didactic because you're definitely not trying to pound a moral into anyone's head if you have something wonderful and mysterious in your story that you delight in, that your audience delights in, But you can't simplify down to a propositional statement you can wonder at your own work one note of warning about that symbols and images are wonderful but they can have baggage that we may not know about they can have cultural psychological even national baggage we might not know about so if you're creating a story you come across a wonderful image like the glass hill and you don't need to explain it all the way Maybe just do a quick Google search or ask some wise artist friends. Just check if there might be meanings, associations, or connotations around the image that suggest something that you didn't want to suggest so that you either don't use it or use it wisely and just know, know what you're doing. So that's the Black Bull of Norway. The call, the Black Bull, the wandering, and the glass hill. Thank you for listening. Join next time to talk more about how to retell fairy tales by referencing the truth and beauty of the Bible.